Isaiah chapter 6 starts on page 571 of your pew Bible, and I'd really like you to try to turn there because I want to I want to flip around in the early part of Isaiah and just kind of give you a bird's eye view of everything we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks. Uh, the reason that we're looking at the book of Isaiah is because one of you asked me to. Uh, when we were in the middle of, I think it was a series on Romans, uh, one of you said, what are we doing next? And I said, I don't know. And she said, how about Isaiah? And I said, maybe not all of it. Uh, um, and so I, I was thinking about that more, and I realized that every year in Advent, we do look at Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, the prophecy of Emmanuel. I thought, well, maybe we could kind of line this up and, and right after set apart, look at the early part of Isaiah. Because Isaiah, while being a large book, if you break him down into chunks, becomes a little more digestible. And one of the things that is really clear about Isaiah is that chapters 1 through 12 definitely stand as a unit. They stand together. But then what I want to look at today is how even within chapters 1 through 12, uh, they break down into two other sections. Right? So uh, putting your finger there uh, on chapter 6, verse 1, just, just the first words for a moment here. In the year that King Uzziah died. Okay, do you remember this from last week? Flip back a couple pages. Go to chapter 1. Yeah? If you weren't here, it's new. That's good. Okay, we're going to do it again. Chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amage, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah. Same guy, same king there, Uzziah. Uh, also, uh, I'm going to get this wrong again. I, I work so hard to remember this. I think his name is also sometimes Amaziah, although there's an Ahaziah, and then there's another one. They all sound the same. So I think that's the one, though. In First in Kings, Second Kings, his name will be a little different, but Uzziah, uh, Uzziah, and then Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. These four kings all are alive at different points during Isaiah's time as a prophet. And when we get to chapter 6, though, we see that Uzziah wasn't alive very long while Isaiah is a prophet. Because in the year that Uzziah died... Isaiah gets his commission to be a prophet. And again, we're going to look at that. We're going to see what that commission, that sending looks like here in a moment. But notice how strange it is that the sending of the prophet comes six chapters into the book. Huh? And we tried to cover this a little bit last week. How, well, chapter one is less chronologically first and more thematically first. Right? It's less about when it happened and more about what it means. And so chapter 1 is an introduction to the whole thrust of at least chapters 1 through 39, which are about how God is going to punish Judah and northern Israel together, how Israel's going to be swept away, how Judah also ultimately has already got the curse. They're going to be swept away, but they can repent. And if they do, it won't happen in their generation. And as we'll see by the end of this opening major section, chapters 1 to 39, Hezekiah the king has that event take place where the great armies of Assyria end up at the gates of Jerusalem with the Rabshakeh shouting in the Hebrew language, don't listen to your king, your God sent us to destroy you. And Hezekiah says, don't listen to him. He goes into the temple to pray, and, and God sends an army of angels to destroy 
the, the armies of Assyria, Rabshakeh and Tiglath-Pileser end up running back to Assyria with their tails between their legs. And, and literally, uh, the king of Assyria then is murdered by his own children and, and the empire collapses because they lifted up their heads against Judah, which they weren't really supposed to or allowed to do. Now, we're actually going to get into some of that story even more in some of the other chapters in chapters 1 through 12. Because again, we're working with thematic ideas more than chronology. All right. Now, so chapter one is a summary of the whole book's theme. Chapter six, I mean, notice there's chapter two, three, four, five. They all go up to six. And finally, in chapter six, Isaiah says, I was sent by God. Huh? Now, why does he put this here? Well, because now I know I'm throwing a lot of structure at you here, but Chapter 1 through 12 is going to hold together as a unit by the time we're done with it, right? Chapter 6 isn't just in the middle officially, although if you think about it, 6 is right in the middle of 12, but it is thematically in the middle. So that you have chapter 1, big picture, chapter 6, Isaiah's call, chapters 2 through 5 are going to hold together, and then chapters 7 through 12 are going to hold together as two little either sides of this call and major theme. I'm not going to bother saying that again. If you got it, you got it. If you didn't, don't worry. Okay. Um, but I want you to then kind of glance at the subtitles of chapters two through five here. So you can see where we're going. Right. Chapter two in our subtitle says the mountain of the Lord. And then a little ways down the page, the day of the Lord. So we're talking about judgment here. Judgment is coming, and God's in charge. Chapter 3 is going to get more clear. Next page, 568. Judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. Remember, judgment doesn't have to be bad, by the way. Judgment just means to measure things the way they ought to be measured, to balance the equation. Huh? So judgment on Judah and Jerusalem, and part of the issue is, we saw this last week, well, Judah and Jerusalem, they're, they're near God with their lips, but their hearts are, are a bit far away from him. And so it maybe won't get so good. Things are going to get a little rough. And in fact, uh, we're going to get here, but it's going to get chopped down as a tree, right? If you think of Jerusalem as a tree, they're going to be chopped down to be like a stump. But then here's where the good news starts coming. Top of page 569 It's in the middle of chapter 4, the, the subtitle again, The Branch of the Lord glorified. This branch idea, which will become the shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse, right? This is already being placed here in chapter four. That's not going to show up till much later in the chapters, but uh, it's already here. The idea that with judgment coming, God isn't going to completely destroy. He's also going to bring forth new life. And then chapter five, uh, the parable of the vineyard, very fascinating little song about how God has planted a vineyard, but the vineyard doesn't want to be cared for by God. Picked up on by Jesus with the parable of the vineyard and the tenants working in the vineyard. We'll spend more time when we get there, but this is basically a condemnation of the leadership of Judah and Jerusalem. Or now let's just full on push this into where we are right now. He's saying, if you're a church that says you love Jesus, but you don't listen to what he says, you're not going to last very long as a church. That, that's what the meaning of that whole parable is. It's a warning against rejecting the one who you claim to be God while also 
holding on to some fake image of him. All right. Then our chapter we're going to look at here in a moment, the call. Then chapter seven, just glance at that, 571. Isaiah sent to King Ahaz. Here we get some story time. And it's a great story. And it's going to be the part where Emmanuel shows up too. So we'll, we'll get there soon. But remember, all of this book is in the years of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, right? Chapter six, in the year Uzziah dies, Jotham's going to reign about 15 years after that. So where did that go? Well, we just kind of skip it, it would seem. Although most of this stuff about Judah having their mouths near God, but their hearts far away from God, that seems to be under Jotham's reign. Jotham was faithful. He did his best to have the people believe and to tear down the high places and to set up good teaching. And yet it didn't happen. Why? Well, we'll get into that a little bit more. But following him, Ahaz, Ahaz officially makes the place wicked. He tears down the altar and he puts in place an altar to Baal. He tries to make everyone believe in gods that are not Jesus Christ. And as a result of, of his doing that, he brings about verse chapter 8. You can see the, the title there, the Assyrian invasion. Uh, Assyria, again, this, this country that's going to destroy northern Israel, will also come down and invade Judah. Uh, look at chapter 9, though. Some good news. We'll be there around Christmas time for to us a child is born. Yeah. Remember that as they're going to get leveled to be a stump, new life will always bring forth. God never destroys his church in such a way that a remnant is not saved and strengthened through the process. And so whenever we hear these kinds of warnings, our task is to say, Jesus, make us that remnant. Jesus, give us faith and strength to endure whatever may come. Uh, chapter 10 is going to continue. Uh, you see the, the subtitle in the middle of it there, page 574, Judgment on Arrogant Assyria. Right, so first, Assyria is going to come against Judah. But, oh, by the way, Assyria, you don't get off the hook so easy. Uh, we'll spend more time talking about that when we get there. Focus, though, on page 575 on the left column toward the top, the remnant of Israel will return. I just said that word a moment ago, remnant, remnant. The remaining small group that still believes is going to be fine. They have the true God. All that's happening is the dross is being purged away from those or those who do not believe are being swept to the side so that there can be room for growth in the faith. Faith, which is put into chapter 11, the righteous reign of the branch. Remember, there's this branch and shoot. It's going to come forth from the stump of Jesse. And this is, yes, Jesus Christ. And then chapter 12, we'll probably look at it with chapter 11 together. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy shall you draw waters from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. Hopefully that sounds familiar to you. Yeah, we sing that uh, in the service of prayer and preaching, and we use that every year during Easter time. So big picture, all right? I won't do that to you again. We'll just go chapter by chapter as we hit forward. And with the rest of our time here this morning, we're going to look at this vision in chapter 6, where Isaiah then is called to this in the year that King Uzziah died. So this king who starts the book off, Isaiah's not alive very long as a prophet in this king's reign. That doesn't mean Isaiah wasn't already a fairly old man. In fact, he probably was. He probably had some other kind of job that he was doing. It would seem from some other reference points, he might have been a court historian. He wrote other books. 
Yeah? And we don't have them. Yeah? Just like Paul wrote other books that we don't have as well. Isaiah, we know he wrote other books because the Bible says so, but they're, they're not around anymore. But sometime during the last year of the reign of King Uzziah, who dies as a leper in seclusion, but still faithful. Do you remember that? Yeah. Uh, uh, Isaiah then is, well, he doesn't say where, but he just sees the Lord. I mean, that alone is worth kind of a shock and awe moment there. Anybody who sees God in the Old Testament or new, you saw St. John this morning as well. Anyone who sees God comes away terrified, terrified. It's, it's an overwhelming experience. In fact, if you think about it, you can't see God. It's impossible. He, he doesn't have a body. Huh? So for you to be exposed to the true God, God must in some way condescend. He must come down and allow this to happen to you. And even then, the common experience of anyone who sees this is fear. It's fear. Now, it's glorious too. Don't get me wrong. It's beautiful what's coming. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. One more piece there though. Who is he seeing? I mentioned this in the explanation of the readings a moment ago. And I want to kind of clarify this as well. I said that this is Jesus. That when when Daniel has his vision, he he sees Jesus. When Ezekiel has his vision of God, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus. I would even go so far as to say that when Moses goes into the tabernacle of meeting and talks to the glorious cloud, he's talking to Jesus. And some might say, well, but isn't that God? And I say, yes, Jesus is God. And then someone might say, but but what about the Father? And to that person, I would say, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. That didn't start in the New Testament. That has always been the case. When Adam and Eve are walking with God in the cool of the day of the garden, they're walking with Jesus. The Father, he dwells in inapproachable light, and he has put forth, he has begotten his Son eternally so that he might walk among us. Jesus then is always the mediator, the one between the Father and us, which is why you can see him, and it's why... You can see him and live, which is what's again going to happen here uh, to, to Isaiah. So he sees Jesus. Now, he's not named Jesus yet. He's not a man yet. He's the pre-incarnate son of God. But he sees him sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And we don't have a lot of thrones in America. Uh, it's not something that's common, although maybe you consider your lazy boy to be your own personal throne, but it should be a little different than that. You know, up on a platform, so whenever you come in, this man who sits there is obviously greater than you. That's the point of a throne, is to make you feel small. And notice, Jesus doesn't shy away from this. It's not arrogant of him to sit on his throne. It wasn't arrogant for David to sit on his throne, or Solomon's throne was really something. He had, I think it's 14 different Uh, golden lions or ivory lions that are covered in gold leading up one on each step major step platform guiding up throne made of entirely of ivory with gold plate everywhere Uh, why to show that he was chosen by god to be the authority and that's what's going on here now we we see the authority rightly above us on this throne and then uh it says high and lifted up the idea again is that he's high but just catch something here 
when Jesus is on the cross, he, he uses the language that he is lifted up. When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So notice the, the paradox, the, the upside down, the flip, the fulfillment of this Jesus sitting on a throne and Jesus nailed to the cross. They're not really different. They're the same place. If you can catch that, it's kind of important, right? I saw the Lord high and lifted up. I saw Jesus Christ crucified. But it was, again, through a vision where he's actually on a throne, right? And the train of his robe filled the temple. Can you imagine a giant chair here with, with Jesus sitting on it, right? And he's got a robe on, something that's like why, why pastors wear robes is to sort of emulate this, to kind of picture this. But can you imagine now even, I guess, here for me, my robe, the train of it going out and around and over all the floor everywhere in here. I was at a wedding yesterday and the bride had that lovely train on her dress and everyone's given so much attention to moving it around. And the last thing anyone would ever do is step on it. So what do you do if you're coming into church and I'm sitting here with a robe on and it's all over the floor? You can't even get in. That's kind of the point. There's no room in this place. In fact, the, the, the only beings that are there have to fly. They can't stand, right? Above him stood the seraphim. That's verse 2. Now, the seraphim are some crazy psycho angel beasts, is what I used to tell the youth groups. Um, they're weird. They're really weird. And, and we have a little bit of a challenge with them uh, because they might be, I think they are, also the cherubim. Seraphim, cherubim. Okay, sounds similar, but the words are very different in Hebrew. Uh, they are these living creatures, is what St. John will call them in, in Revelation chapter 4. These beings that are angelic, but they then, they look pretty funky. Uh, and it doesn't say much about them here in their image, just how many, how many wings they have. So I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, but if they are the same as the living creatures John sees and the, the cherubim that, uh, that Ezekiel sees, they have bestial faces, and maybe they ha each have four bestial faces. Maybe each of them has a different bestial face. Again, it gets really muddy, I would say, to the level where uh, some preachers, some scholars want to say they're all different. I'm not sure. I, th I think they're all, we're looking at them from different angles. But uh, you have the image of an ox. You have the image of an eagle. You have the image of a lion. And you have the image of, of a man. And these are connected to these flying, eyeball-covered, fiery beings that are surrounding the throne of God. And anybody who sees this vision of the throne of God mentions these things. Yeah. And I guess maybe the most important thing is they don't look like anything you're going to buy on a card at Hallmark. Right? I know you're all going to send out Christmas letters soon, right? you got angels in the sky, and they're basically going to look like pretty women with trumpets and wings right? That's nice and all, but it's, it's not really biblical at all. Okay. Now, not all angels necessarily look like these cherubim, seraphim, living beasts, whatever they are, um, but most of the time, angels have the same effect God does. They're scary, and, and these ones definitely are, are scary when you look at them, okay? We're, we're not going to chase that too much now, but just kind of put it there that the, the gloriousness of this is that it's overwhelmingly terrifying, that doesn't mean it's bad. They're on your side. 
In fact, we're going to see in a moment what these angels are doing as they're praying in praise. And I would say on behalf of all creation. So, so let me explain that here. When you have an ox and a lion and an eagle and a man, you have the king of the wild beasts. You have the king of the domesticated beasts. You have the king of the birds and you have the king of the world. All creation is symbolized in these four. And the number four, by the way, also is the number of creation in the Old Testament. Number of the earth, I should say. Number of the world. So when they say, holy, 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 Lord God, that's us. That's the whole world. That's everything that is praising God. And they're leading us in that song at all times. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But first we got the wings, okay? Uh, Chapter 1, verse 2. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. That seems weird, doesn't it? Uh, wouldn't you fly with all six or something? Now, why are they just there for coverings? Uh, well, like I said, they can't stand in the space. God's glorious robe, is his, his high level is too great for that. So they have to fly. That's the two. So what do they do with their feet? Think of it this way a little bit. Remember when Moses meets the burning bush? What's the first thing the bush says to him? Uh, Take your shoes off. That's right. You're on holy ground. So so your feet are uh, special, dirty, uh, not always holy of themselves. And the idea that they're covering their feet now while they fly is just that same concept, right? It's 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 not piety. It's not quite right. But it's, it's a demonstration of that they're in a holy place, and so they should act special, right? And the same is true then for their faces. They cover their eyes. Why? So that they don't look on the glory of God. So that uh, they are able to be in God's presence without being devoured by the eternal fire and everlasting consuming light that he is. And yes, it's Jesus, and so he's mediating, and he's not going to consume them. And and we're all saved by him being high and lifted up. That's true. But they're still going to be reverent about the whole thing. Salvation into trust in Christ isn't cavalier. It isn't about how I get to put my feet up in front of Jesus. It's about how I get to actually be in Jesus' presence and praise him in holy reverence and awe. And that's that's what the wings then are, are demonstrating here for us. Okay? Then, verse 3, one called to another and said. So we have a a summary of a song. And how did it really sound? I mean, did one say, holy, holy, holy? The other said, holy, holy, holy back? I was reading a commentary on this. And and, uh, he kind of talked about how one would just say, holy. And another one would go, holy. And they kind of blend on top of each other back and forth. And I had this amazing feeling. I was listening to a choir. And all all I was doing was reading a book. Uh, but I, could you hear that? If they, they each come in on a different tone and the holies are just building on top of each other all over the place. I don't know. They're singing a song. And they're singing this song about how God is three times holy. Notice the Trinitarian imagery there. And remember, the word holy means, can someone tell me? We, hmm? I almost hear it. Say it louder. Set apart. There you go. We do this every year so we can learn that word, right? Uh, uh, It means set apart. It means different. It means unique. It means not belonging to everything else. And so God himself is the only true set apart thing. He's not creation. Everything else is creation. God is not creation. 
Why are you holy? Because the God who is holy, who's not creation, has chosen to take you out of the fallen creation and put you in a new one. And he's doing this by taking his own holiness and putting it into you through the person of Jesus, who you will eat in the holy meal in just a few moments. So they're singing about this, yeah? Three times, holy, the Trinity is set apart, and is this then the Lord of hosts, Jesus Christ, King of armies? Hosts are armies. Maybe you remember from Divine Service 3, we'll sing about uh, Lord of Sabaoth. Remember that? I always thought that was a weird word as a kid. Now, why, is he, why is he Lord of Sabaoth? And what is that, a heavy metal band? You know, I, what, what does it mean? Uh, Sabaoth, it means armies. Uh, it means like lots and lots of military power. Uh, God is the God of angelic military power. And the whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, and what does that mean? It means that it's obvious God created the world. That's what it means. It means that the trees and the cows and the fish, they're not in doubt that there's a God and even who that God is. And the only beings in the entire creation that are in any doubt about there being a God are stupid humans. We're so smart that we figured out it would be stupid. Even the demons know there's a God. They don't doubt him. They're just in rebellion against him. We're like pretending he's not even here, especially in our present age. Even those of us who believe in God are driven to live as if he's not there all the time. That's how great atheism has become as an influence in our, in our society. In any case, so the whole earth being full of his glory is, is the statement that it's obvious there's a God and that he's good. Now, what happens when they sing this song, holy, 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 and it's all going like yeah, the foundations of the temple shake. So again, you come into church, you see Jesus up on this throne. He's got his robe filling the place. There's angelic beasts that are filled with fire and animal faces singing songs, and the whole building has an earthquake. I mean, you'd be scared too, I think. Yeah, you'd be scared too. It's kind of neat. The voice of him who called the house is filled with smoke. Incense goes up everywhere. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, uh, a cloud, a smoky cloud is a common thing that happens where God is. Think of the pillar of cloud and fire that led the people of Israel out of Egypt and how it would enter into the tabernacle to talk with with Moses. Uh, Remember when when, uh, uh, Solomon dedicates the temple, a cloud shows up, it comes down, it goes into the temple. Just a few moments ago, we heard the transfiguration. Jesus is there. He shines like the sun. And what shows up? A big cloud shows up, right? So the smoke, again, is an image of the presence of God. And that is, by the way, why some churches still do make use of incense. They burn incense and you come in the building, it smells a little, it's a little visceral, and you'll see some cloud. Well, the idea is it's, it's typing, it's, it's symbolizing God's presence, okay? So, whole place filled with smoke, and what's Isaiah say? Well, he says, woe is me, I'm lost. I don't deserve to be here. I confess that I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, Yeah. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, Jesus Christ of armies. So he confesses his sin. He recognizes that everything that he has done up to this point in his life is is not sufficient. And beautiful of beautifuls, what happens next is he's forgiven. He gets holy absolution. 
One of the seraphim flew to me, verse 6, having in his hand a burning coal he had taken from the altar. Now, again, if I was terrified before, I think I'd be even more terrified now. He's going to take a burning coal and shove it in my face. Huh? But, but this burning coal is Jesus, or at the very least, it's his blood. See the overlap between here you come. You just confessed your sins. You're about to have God now take something from the altar, bread and wine which is Jesus' flesh and blood. He's going to put it in your mouth. He's going to say the same thing. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Not by the burning coal itself, right? Not by the bread and wine by itself, but by the God who is high and lifted up on the cross, who has spoken all of these things to be true, so that you might be called out of the people of unclean lips in which you dwell, and given new words and new thoughts and new hope and have a life set apart, looking forward to a life that will be set apart forever and ever in the paradise that is to come. Verse 8, he then hears the voice of Jesus saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Here's this commissioning part, right? So apparently God isn't just showing them this for fun. God needs to send a preacher. And Isaiah is going to get to be that preacher at this time. And And again, we'll look at more of what his preaching is as it goes. But uh, notice how he says with with great, great exuberance, send me, send me. Now, I don't want you all to be preachers, not in the sense of you have to go to seminary and get a degree and then spend your life uh, officially taking care of churches. But I do want you all to be preachers. In that I want every single one of you to be ready to speak the word of God when the time comes. I want every single one of you to be ready to say, he is risen. Alleluia. I want every single one of you to be ready to say, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. I want the word of God to dwell richly in you. So that rather than living in fear of this dark and evil, atheistic, demonic age, in which you're not sure whether you can say this or that to whoever, lest they judge you and look at you the wrong way. I want you to be so convinced that the coal of the bread and wine, which has touched your lips, that is the body and blood of Jesus, has you firm, that nothing can shake you from this pilgrimage. And that you then, when you have that word of God with full conviction, can be a witness to it. Speak it plainly. And if others walk away because they don't like what the Bible says, well, you know, that's, that's, that's their decision. But you get to be free, free of conscience, free of mind, and filled with the peace that passes all understanding, which again is to know that God has not only called you, but he has sent you, set apart and holy, and again, filled with the glorious power of the trifled holy God, Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.